Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk about the gun ownership issue in this in this country. With a guest who's been with us in the past, with the federal government introducing this legislation to cap the numbers of handguns in Canada. Tony Bernardo is the executive director of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Tony, good to have you back with us. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, Roy. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, who makes up the Canadian Shooting Sports Association? What are your concerns and actions? Um, what are your concerns about what the federal government is doing? Well, I, I think there's a number of concerns here, Roy. Uh, first of all, we're 37,000 members right across the country. Our members are, of course, all law-abiding. They have Canadian possession and acquisition licenses, firearms licenses, which are vetted by the RCMP once every 24 hours on a continual, non-stop basis. Our members are trained, they're empirically safe, and they're empirically law-abiding, or they wouldn't have those licenses. We use these handguns for sport. Um, in Canada, handguns are very tightly regulated and have been for a long time. For example, you may only fire a handgun at a registered range. You have to have permits to move the handgun anywhere. It cannot leave your home without a permit. And uh, that has been in application for a very, very long time. Uh, amount of crimes committed with a lawful handgun are almost zero. And, uh, we, yeah, we feel this is definitely being directed against law-abiding firearms owners since it isn't being directed against anybody else. If you look at the entire legislation, all 53 pages of it, it only applies to lawful firearms owners. I should have started with this, Tony, and I apologize. I should have started, uh, my first question to you should have been about the response, the reaction of uh, the CSSA to the shootings in the United States. And one of the things I do know is that lawful gun owners, I've talked to a number of them since the shooting at Uvalde, are absolutely horrified at what took place. And there are people who will associate anyone who owns a firearm legally with being a danger. Speak to that, please. We are clearly not. Without, with a firearms license, you're checked out so often that you cannot be a danger. There is the odd incident of what they call straw purchasing. Um, so far, there's been less than a dozen documented cases of straw purchasing in the history of Canada. This is quite uncommon. And usually what happens is somebody gets uh, wired on drugs um, or involved in a sex trade and they're forced to do this. There's nobody doing this for the purposes of making profit. And, uh, of course, they're, that means they're victimized multiple times, right? So we have always maintained a very high ground. Safety and in all of its aspects is number one with our, um, our members. And, and I can tell you from the firearms community in Canada, Safety is the most important thing that we do. Um, accidents are very few. Um, crimes are very few. And, you know, we, we can prove this. It's not just me saying so. 
we obtain for our members, for every one of our members, $5 million of primary liability insurance every single year. And our wholesale cost on that is about $9.50 a year. So not a lot of claims. Yeah, none. (laughs) Very, very few. Um, But, you know, in terms of us being a danger, well, insurance companies don't deal in maybes. They deal in numbers. And One of the things to remember is it's shooting sports associations, or there are people who, right. who like to shoot as a sport. It's something yes. they enjoy doing, and, and I know from dealing with people who are involved in shooting sports, safety is absolutely paramount. You start to be unsafe on the range, you're gone. Yeah, and very quickly, too. Let me uh, ask you this. The, the, the feds, sorry, the feds have said they made allowance for sports in this. But the only people that are permitted to acquire new handguns are what they call elite sport shooters, i.e. members of the Olympic team. How do you get to be an elite shooter if you can't practice? See, these are long journeys, and every journey begins with a single step. Mm -hmm. And you can't get that very first target handgun. So is there... be a competitor. Tony, is there communication between the federal government and provincial governments, perhaps, with the CSSA as far as um, legislation being introduced and passed in Parliament and in provincial legislatures is concerned? Is there dialogue? Is there communication? Is there? Nope. Do you help each other mutually? Uh, no, this government refuses to talk to any of the associations. Um, you know, this is this is the Liberal government. They will simply not talk to you at all. If you get somebody within the government who is willing to talk to you and their lips are moving, you know they're lying. Um, We have never, ever had a communication from the Liberal government asking for our advice, asking for our experience. We've been in business 62 years. We know way more about this than they do. But that's not what it's about. It's about politics. Tony, good talking to you. Thank you for the time. You're very welcome, Roy. If I might add to the value of the guns that they're taking from us without compensation, it is over $1.5 billion. Billion. The Danforth Families for Safe Communities, following a mass shooting in Toronto in July of 2018, which claimed the lives of two young women and resulted in the wounding of 13 more individuals, after this, a group of families, the DFSC, began and they continue to, quote, advocate for measures to improve community safety, including gun policy reform. Ken Price is a member of the Danforth Families for Safe Communities. His daughter, Samantha, was wounded by the shooter in July of 2018. Mr. Price, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate the opportunity. So DFSC advocates for improved community safety, including gun policy reform. What you experienced as families in 2018 in Toronto with two deaths and 13 woundings must have been massively traumatic, must still be for many. What are you as a group advocating for as far as gun policy reform is concerned? Everyone in North America is talking about it, and it's really a global issue. What does uh, DFSC want to see? Well, I think, first of all, we decided after some months, because it's not easy to do so, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, to recount the experience, I think what we tried to first of all get across 
to people uh, is, you know, what it means when mistakes happen, when there's theft, diversion, whatever. When there's a, when you're on the wrong side of a gun, what does that mean to you, to your family, to a neighborhood, to a community? Because really, that's what's at stake in terms of each and every mistake or misstep by someone. Um, so I think our first our first decision was, you know, can we talk about this because it's not easy? And secondly, should we? Will it be helpful to the people involved? And do we think we might be able to use that to to recommend change? Because I think as what happened to us occurred, uh, you know, the nation was undergoing a bit of a, you know, of a resurgence in gun violence uh, from about 2015 and onward, particularly in Toronto, but not only in Toronto. And, uh, you know, we kind of joined a, a discussion that was going on. Um, and so we thought what, what we should learn about this and then and then try to make the recommendations that we would like to see happen as now very concerned citizens and also uh, as people who have gone through this. So that's what we decided to do. Okay. I should have asked you first how your daughter is, how she reacts when we hear about terrible mass shootings like Uvalde in Texas. Later on this hour, Mark Barden is going to be joining us. His son Daniel was killed at Sandy Hook 10 years ago. How is your daughter and and how does she respond to initiatives by the federal government like Bill C-21? Well, she is certainly supportive of the work we're doing as a group. I think her life has definitely changed, as you probably uh, could expect. So while she recovered physically from her injury, um, you know, her trust in the city when she goes out at night, when she rides the subway, which she used to do every day to school, when she goes to fireworks, uh, that's no longer on the menu. So there are definitely changes uh, when she looks at what we're trying to do. I think she's supportive and uh and, you know, but has been reluctant to, she's one of the many people that are reluctant to kind of share or be able to talk to the uh, experience. Um, uh, it's difficult to do. And so she doesn't talk as publicly as her parents have. And so that's what, what we have tried to do on her behalf. Um, so it's, it's tough, but thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. Bill C-21, let me ask you about Bill C-21. Capping handgun ownership and freezing the sale, the importation, and the transfer of handguns. I'm going to ask you what you may think is the most banal question you've heard today. (laughs) But here I go. Why is this legislation necessary? Well, I think that what we did learn, um, and look, this is going to cost somebody something. So I'm going to say that right at the the start, right, which is uh, maybe you know, the right of the average recreational shooter who is law-abiding uh, to, to you know, surrender their guns. And, and here's why. Because as handguns have grown by about 55,000 a year, I think that's the number the public safety minister quoted. That's what's in the firearms report. So we've seen the growth of handguns from a few hundred thousand up to the million that we have now. There's been, uh, at the same time, um, a growth in the number of handgun crimes in the country. And so then people are asking, well, where are those guns coming from? And there's no question that a lot of those guns, some number of those guns, are coming across the border. Um, I would say there are are some that say that it's all of the guns are coming across the border. They're being illegally smuggled in, such as, say, was the case in Porta Peak. That's not true in our case, and that's not true in many other cases. I can point to an incident, for example, in April in, in the Annex neighborhood of Toronto, where a person who had a restricted possession and acquisition license amassed a uh, allegedly, I should say allegedly, because this has not been proven in court, but it was reported in the media that a person had uh, amassed a number of guns and used handgun to indiscriminately shoot at people in on the downtown streets of Toronto. So there's an example right there. 
There are examples of where gun clubs, uh, you know, there was a, a theft of a number of guns out of a gun club in Dunmore, Alberta in May on June the 1st. Uh, the Global News, I noticed, reported that there was a person that ran around with a with a license they had obtained through uh, identity theft um, and, uh, and, and through activities with auction houses had amassed 68 guns. And yeah, they were caught. But, you know, all, not all of the guns have been retrieved from those situations. We, so the answer is we don't know how many guns are coming from the domestic supply and are turning into crime guns. Um, but we're, we're look at other countries where they have tighter handgun policies and they have fewer handgun issues. And we know that handgun problems are on the rise in this country. So we think it's a mixture of both border security and um, basically a, a cap and then eventual phasing out of handguns in Canada that will lead to safer streets for us. And that's what we've been advocating for. I hope listeners don't think I'm going to pit one guest against another. This is not the idea for this segment. I want to talk to our guests, hear their points of view, and you decide when you're listening where you stand on this issue. Ken, on the issue of uh, long gun ownership in Canada, it's very difficult and it's time-consuming to qualify for and obtain an unrestricted permit in Canada. What are your thoughts on the possession of shotguns and rifles? Well, I kind of grew up in a part of the country where that was prevalent. You know, I mean, uh, shotguns, hunting rifles, um, you know, rifles, shotguns. Um, you know, admittedly, as I'm growing up, I'm a little bit older. Maybe those rifles weren't as high-powered and more and more high-powered, you know, derivatives of, um, uh, you know, military-style technologies found its way into consumer products. So we take issue with that. But we're not, you know, that's a vast minority of people that hold these restricted licenses. And it's a vast minority of of, hunt, of uh, gun-holding folks that have those kinds of licenses. So the guns that we're talking about, which are the ones that are most frequently used in crimes, are the ones that we have issue with when we just talk about the supply side of the issue. So there are, I don't know, like 2.2, 2.3 million people that have these licenses in general. And I think about 600,000 have restricted licenses. So it's it's a minority. And I think only about half of those actually use handguns and half are for the other restricted weapons, which and this aren't easy facts to track or to get a hold of, but that's what we've been able to find out. So what I would say to the, you know, to the vast majority of gun owners and hunters and on the supply side and the kinds of weapons they're using for hunting and uh, warding pests off of farms and things like that, we have no, we, we hope that they continue to responsibly use those weapons as they do. And we have no issue with that. We're, we're really trying to reduce risk by taking the most dangerous and often used weapons in crime out of circulation in Canada to try to help. Okay, have 30 seconds left. How much interest do you hear or do you discern exists in Canada on the issue of gun ownership from the population? Well, I think when asked, you know, like we were probably like us, you know, before this happened to us, you know, it's an issue in balance. Um, but when asked, you know, we see surveys that suggest most people want to see action taken and they wanted to see it taken at the federal level. But, you know, action not only on this, but on resources at the border, on, you know, protections for women against violent partners, all kinds of other issues. And I think it's because the bill was comprehensive. You know, if it had just been about, you know, capping handguns, I think the Danforth families would be very disappointed, but it's not. It's about a bunch of things that need to happen that I think even uh, gun owners and gun clubs and so on have gotten behind. So we're, we're hopeful that it'll go forward, but we know there's a long way to go before it gets implemented. 
I just want to talk to some people who, who have an interest in guns, who have a position to take, who have a res- uh, who've taken some level of responsibility for coming forward with their public positions, and that's what we're doing. I want to remind you, before I talk to my next guest, because I know what his point is, I want to just say this. We did a program a couple of years ago, a 69-year-old man in New Brunswick was the victim of a home invasion. Four individuals broke into his house, and they were beating on him badly and uh, pistol-whipping him. And he managed to get his hands on the, I think it was a shotgun, might have been a rifle, one or the other. He managed to get his hands on the firearm that the individual, one of those four home invaders, brought, brought into his house. And he shot the individual in the leg. And the 69-year-old victim of the home invasion, who had been badly beaten, was criminally charged and faced more time in prison, potentially, than the home invaders. That's reality in Canada. That was the law. That's the way it is. Let's talk to my next guest. He stands firm to support the Second Amendment and leaving current gun ownership regulations in place, as I understand it. Dan Was is the author of Good Gun, Bad Guy. He's the host of the Loaded Mike podcast. And uh, Dan, it's, it's danwas.com, right? Uh, it's goodgunbadguy.com. And it's so great to be on here with you, Roy. How, how's everything up there in Canada? Well, I'm just back from vacation. I'm just trying to get my mouth to work. <laughs> Dan, let's start on this on the gun issue. It's hugely emotional. It's, it's very important. Uh, in, in Canada, we don't have the same reality with firearms or firearms legislation that you do in the United States. So what's the defense of the Second Amendment? And what does the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantee? Well, the Second Amendment doesn't guarantee anything. What, what the Second Amendment does, it's a, it's a reminder to government where their limitations lie. In other words, that Second Amendment says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is a God-given right. That's not a, that's not a government-issued privilege, and this is where people get things mixed up. That Second Amendment was written by our founders, to remind the government that this is where your authority stops. Because the people, when we, when we fought for our freedom, and we earned and we won our freedom, our founders knew that there would be tyrants coming, and they saw the Joe Bidens coming over 200 years away. So they wrote that little thing in as a reminder to our government to watch their manners. President Biden, you, you mentioned uh, Mr. Biden made a speech to Americans this week in which he said, and I paraphrase, that he doesn't want to take people's guns away from them, but he does want background checks, and I believe he addressed high-capacity magazines and certainly AR-15 rifles uh, in the wake of uh, Uvalde, in the wake of uh, Tulsa, the, the shootings there. What did you hear Joe Biden say? I hear the same old rhetoric, and what I hear is, First of all, when we talk about background checks, they want universal background checks. And let me let people of Canada understand what that means. That means a gun registry. The first step to confiscation is a gun registry. We've seen that in hundreds of countries across all over the world. The gun registry, first it comes regulations, and then comes registration, and then comes confiscation. We don't, we won't have it. And the, the gun, re- the, uh, you know, the background checks that we have now are already a failed system where we can get in 2017 for instance there were 
112,090 background check denials. Of that 112,000 denials, the vast majority were false positives. In other words, good people being denied their right to defend themselves for no good reason because there were only 12 prosecutions, a dozen out of 112. So the background system here in America fails. It's It's a huge failure. But what they want, now they call it universal background checks, which means, a, which means a transfer between family members, friends, whoever. They want to know every single gun transaction. And frankly, Roy, it's none of the government's damn business who has guns and where they're located. This is America. Our founding fathers wanted it that way, and that's why they wrote that Second Amendment. So, uh, and Joe Biden goes on to talk about magazine capacity. They call it high capacity. Well, there's nothing high capacity about 10 rounds in a magazine. This is absolute lunacy. These are just rhetoric, talking points for the Democrats in our country to create a narrative to scare people who don't know any better into supporting gun control. So this is what we're fighting back. The good thing is uh, we are a free country. We we do, we do theoretically rule over our government, and uh, we have what's called the Bill of Rights, and that is an outline of our rights given by God and the limitations of our government. So, Dan, uh, I started by talking about the uh, 69-year-old man in New Brunswick who was charged criminally after he was able to get the gun away from one of the four home invaders. There were young guys. And, and shot him in the leg. I'm, I'm, I'm going from memory, but I'm, I'm quite sure he shot him in the leg. Sure, sure. And he faced more time in jail, potentially, and I interviewed this man and his lawyer at the time. He faced more time in jail than the home invaders. And to most people, that sounded like just so wrong. But let me just ask you about this. How wrong is this? 18-year-old killer of 19 children and two teachers purchased two high-powerful rifles and a great deal of ammunition legally in Texas just before he committed the murders. But if he drank a beer and were seen by a Texas law enforcement official drinking that beer at 18 years of age, he would have received a citation. How do we put that together? Well, here's how I put it together. Well, I, I don't compare the two. I think it's two completely different things. But let me explain to you why the people were so vulnerable in those schools and why school killings continue to happen in America. It's it's not because of a gun. Everybody knows and I'm sure everybody listening understands that this is not a this is not gun violence. There's no such thing as gun violence. This is human violence and sometimes they use a gun, sometimes they use other things. But what perpetrated what perpetuated this type what perpetuates rather this type of violent killings in schools is what we what is what's called the 1990 Gun-Free School Zones Act. Joe Biden introduced it into Congress along with, or as part of, the Crime Control Act in 1990. And what this did was it disarmed everyone on campus, making the students and teachers vulnerable. Where, now, now where, where on planet Earth does it make sense to bus kids, thousands and thousands of kids to schools, keep them in there all day long, remove all forms of, of armed security, teachers who may be likely or inclined to carry a gun, remove that, make the kids vulnerable, and then 
put a sign on the building that says, everyone inside is unarmed and helpless. This is your gun-free zone sign or your no guns allowed sign. This is the cause of this problem. Now, you put security, enough security, three, four, depending on how, how big the campus is. You put security on, on school campus, on school uh, campuses, and or you allow people who have concealed carry licenses who would be inclined to carry, we're not forcing people to carry like the Democrats will tell you, you put the people who would be inclined and, and, and one person comes into that school and tries to harm those kids, they're shot dead on sight, and that is the end of it. And it wouldn't happen again. But Democrats don't do that. Why is that? Why do the Democrats in America... Yeah, I, have, I literally have 30 seconds. Sorry, Roy, I know I'm going on here. Go ahead. But why do they continue that? Because that's great fuel for them to push for more gun control. It's the same reason why they keep Chicago, Detroit, and all these Democrat-run cities so violent. They don't let the people carry to defend themselves, and that way they get more gun-related death numbers, and it helps them push for more gun control, because ultimately they want us, the good guys, disarmed. Following the December 12th, 2012 mass shooting of grade one students at Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut, where 20 children and six staff were killed. The Sandy Hook promise was initiated and has carried forward throughout the United States. Sandy Hook promise envisions a future where children are free from shootings and acts of violence in their schools, homes, and communities. I quote directly. 14 million people have participated in the Know the Signs program, 321 confirmed lives saved, 115,000 anonymous tips have been received, 115,000. Mark Barton is the co-founder and CEO of Sandy Hook Promise Action Fund. He's a board director, and as I said, and it's just so difficult to keep saying this, but it's in context, his son Daniel was one of the children killed at Sandy Hook. Mr. Barton's been on this program before. How are you, Mark? I am uh, hanging in there, Roy. Thank you so much for having me on again. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. We we need to talk over sometime about something a little easier. But this is your focus, and and you're working hard to get your country engaged in the in the discussion and and making change. School shootings continue. Last December, you and I spoke about the shooting in Michigan, where the parents of the 15 year old shooter Ethan Crumbly were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Now the world is recoiling at the carnage in Uvalde, Texas, in that classroom. Mark, why why is it, I'm maybe asking the question nobody can answer, why is it continuing? Why is it ongoing? What, what's going on? Yeah, that's the, that, is, that is the question of the day, <clears throat> Roy. And, you know, to hear uh, Justin Trudeau saying, What's, we, need to, we need to get ahead of this and uh, shape up our policies before we wind up like, like the U.S., I mean, it's, it's shameful and it's embarrassing that we're the model that folks are using to try to avoid at this point, and rightfully so, because there are so, I mean, in between the, the uh, Uvalde shooting and the, the one in the Tulsa, I think there were 17 more mass shootings in that interim, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just it's beyond, it's beyond uh, unacceptable. Um, but you know, thank you for reciting the numbers of uh, of the success stories we've been able to uh, achieve with Sandy Hook Promise with students who are trained in those warning signs. And you know, I'll just say to 
the, the great common denominator here is there are warning signs before these tragedies happen, and those warning signs represent opportunities uh, for somebody to make an intervention and connect that individual to help before it becomes a tragedy. Um, one, one of the, and thank you for, for, for knowing all those numbers because they're constantly changing as we continue to train more students, but to date that we can speak to as a direct result of students trained in our uh, Know the Science programs, we have now prevented nine uh, school shootings uh, and which is really significant when you think, and that's what we know of that we can speak to. Um, but if you think of um, of the ripple effect when there's a school shooting, in addition to the victims' families, but all the extended family and all of the members of the community, and really the collective uh, grief throughout the country, uh, that, that that's that's uh, significant, and that multiplied by nine now uh, students who have intervened and prevented a mass shooting, and then hundreds of suicides, uh, all from students who are trained in our programs, and then. We're passing policy uh, on school safety, on gun safety at the state level and uh, at the federal level. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic in the midst of all of this, uh, while my heart is breaking for these families who are suffering this loss of preventable gun violence. But I know that we have a model that works, and we're still able to bring these programs to schools at no cost. And I'm just very anxious to, uh, to grow this to scale. And uh, I know that over time we can have a, 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 a substantive impact on our culture in addition to the interventions that we're able to make yeah, you're making a big difference uh, mark you also prefer and going back to my notes from our last conversation nonpartisan policy initiatives that san diego promise you're not about attempting to disarm americans but you do want responsible gun ownership and you're supported by many gun owners in that regard how's that going in the united states how's the the gun debate or the issue being debated i, I think of and i mentioned this to my last guest an 18-year-old on his birthday buying assault rifle, two of them, uh, if he were caught by a t Texas police officer on that same day on his 18th birthday drinking a beer, he'd get a fine. It, yeah. it, it's it's mind-boggling. How's the, how's the debate going? Um, yeah, please tell us. You know, we, we've seen for uh, the better part of a decade now, Roy, that um, at least 90% of Americans are... are are asking, are begging um, their elected officials uh, to, to do something on gun safety, and uh, it's unconscionable that they continue to uh, to ignore uh, what what the, the people are asking them for, begging them for. Uh, I'm, I'm, I feel like it's different this time. I think uh, I think a lot of folks thought what happened to us in Sandy Hook was an anomaly, and now that it has happened again, because we've been saying all along it's going to happen again, now it has, and, and I, I think there's there's a different sentiment. Um, there's more outrage. There's more uh, calls to action, uh, and, and I think it's going to be different. I think um, even you know our our, our folks on the uh, Republican side of the aisle uh, are going to be uh, held to task by their constituents uh, finally at long last. Uh, and, and like you said, everything we're, that we're calling for uh, universal background checks, excuse me, extreme risk protection orders, or otherwise known as red flag laws, um, secure storage. Um, those policies do not infringe on anybody's Second Amendment right. As a matter of fact, they actually protect people's Second Amendment right if you play that scenario out. Um, and so those are some of the policy uh, initiatives that we support that we know are evidence-based to save lives and are consistent with our Constitution. And again, um, you know, com community-based uh, violence intervention programs like what we do at Sandy Hook Promise as well uh, are also proven effective, uh, as we just talked about. So we have solutions. Uh, we, we just need to get folks on board to, to help us get them out there.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 